Well, thank you so much for inviting me here. My wife and I are so excited to worship with you this evening. I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14 with me. Um, and as you turn there, uh, if you've hit Philemon or Hebrews, you've gone too far. Um, but we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 tonight. So, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father and God of all truth and love, who has prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. We ask now you pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. I ask now for a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Empower me to preach your word and for the hearts and minds of all here to receive it and be strengthened to greater faith and trust in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, what is the point of spiritual disciplines? If you are already saved, why pray? Why read your Bible? Worship? Seek to become like Christ. If all sins are forgiven at Calvary and we have been promised eternal life, what is there left for us to do? Maybe I'll ask this a different way. Uh, what is your telos? What is your aim or purpose in life? And what is the main motivation behind your day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year living? Well, some thoughts that may have come to your mind or you might commonly hear someone answer would be to be moral, to do good, not evil. Do your duty. Keep your word. Be self-controlled and godly. And those would be correct, good answers in their own ways. Jesus himself is the exemplified version of a moral and upright life. Yet, those actions are not in and of themselves the aim of the Christian life. They're the means which we are prepared for our final end, our blessed hope the return and the appearance of the glory of God. And that is to behold him in all his splendor, and by that be in full eternal happiness with our great God and creator. And so consider that for those of us who call God Savior, you are saying that you have received the saving grace of God. You have received Jesus Christ. You are now a part of his elect, And those identified at the beginning of our letter are the ones 
who we would call have the knowledge of the truth. And by receiving the knowledge of truth, it should lead us to godliness, a godly life, a daily habit, an outlook, and a heart that eagerly looks forward to this eternity. An eternity with our Creator, the one who promises a future blessed life. So in the days when this letter was first written to Titus, by its author Paul, it was intended as a means to build up the faith of Christians and their understanding of who God is. And by carrying out his ministry, Paul writes this letter to Titus, his mentee, we might say, and the young congregation he's caring for on the island of Crete. And let's consider some of those details to help us understand our message tonight. Titus was pastoring to the Cretans and seeking to follow faithfully what Paul had told him to do, establish elders and deacons, and cultivate a healthy Christian community. But division had arisen in the congregation. Members opposed Titus and his teaching. And this letter describes some of these as insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, those whose minds and consciences are defiled. It says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Similarly, we might think in other parts of Scripture, a description like James, who says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Or Second Timothy 3 describes ones as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Simple to say that actions speak louder than words. And so, to some degree or another, this faction of members were not yielding to God's minister. They were not submitting to his teaching and to his preaching. So, in response, Paul instructs that they must be silenced. Their false doctrine and teaching will corrupt and damage the young and fragile church in Crete. And the remedy or the counter to this is that he says to teach what accords with sound doctrine and rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Well, thanks be to God when uh, this is not the case in his local church. That because of faithful ministers who teach and instruct, says that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So where is sound doctrine teaching meant to lead us? I think our passage tonight answers that. And so that there are two stages of Christian living that come from submitting ourselves to God's word and his ministers. The first is virtuous living, that is the now. And the second is beholding the glory of God, the future or the not yet. And because the saving grace of God has come to us, we must live virtuously, awaiting our blessed hope, the coming of the glory of our triune God. And that takes us to our first point tonight, the saving grace of God. We must live virtuously out of response to God's saving grace. But how then do we live virtuously? Well, if we looked back, certainly in this time and culture, the philosophy of Aristotle and other Greek philosophers was prominent. And it held that the highest virtues for anyone were prudence, justice, temperance, and courage. And I think they were onto something. 
the desire for virtuous living. But here's where they fell short. They didn't understand what actually enables virtuous living. It's not sheer human effort or more intellectualism. It is divine grace. God's divine saving grace, which both enables us and it requires of us virtuous and godly living. The grace God makes possible is a life of faithfulness, but yet at the same time it requires faithfulness of us. So if you look at me at verse 11, it says to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And that happens by God's grace training us. You think for a moment of the famous passage from Matthew 11, Jesus gives these words, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In the ancient world, the phrase or the understanding to take someone's yoke upon you was a language to say you will be a disciple of them. You will place yourself under their teaching and follow their way of living. And in this passage tonight, it tells us that God's grace is the Christian's yoke. It's our instructor. It's our trainer. But virtuous living is not simply just doing the right things, having the correct behavior, abiding by societal norms. And those are all good. Virtue is a cultivation of character traits that moves us from not just right motivations, but to right actions. Think of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength from your deep down moving outward. And it's one thing to renounce bad practices, like we see in verse 12, instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That is to clean up the rooms of our heart, we might say. But if all we do is renounce, we don't replace that with holiness, greater vices and passions of this world will come back in. Think of Jesus' own teaching about this. He explains this phenomena in his return of an unclean spirit in Luke 11. It says that for one who does not spiritually fill that cleaned up heart, the last state of the person will be worse than the first. And that's why the idea that somehow we must clean up ourselves before we actually come to God will fail every time. Rather, the saving grace of God not only empowers us to throw off our vices, but rather to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have been called to. And what is that? That is the, it's the supernatural overwhelming power that came both to these believers in Crete And it comes now to each of us today. When the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, lowered himself and dwelt among us, the transforming power of his saving grace overcame. It overcame our yokes of darkness and lawlessness and hopelessness. And Jesus, by doing so, declared, You are mine. Today I take you back to myself. Right living, or pious living, for the sake of itself, is not what the Lord intends for us. Sheer moralism always fails. Our daily living is meant to be focused, rather, 
on the true and the living God and do so out of a thankfulness for what he has done for us, how he has redeemed us. And to think about this or to understand this, I thought of the example of someone like Louis Zamperini. Maybe that name is familiar to you. Maybe you've heard his story or read his story. Louis Zamperini was a a U.S. soldier during World War II. He was flying over the ocean on a mission when it was shot down or fell down. And he and his fellow soldiers were at sea for 47 days on a life raft. And finally, after floating there for almost seven weeks, a ship appears. Deliverance, they think. But unfortunately, it was a Japanese warship. It was the enemy. And so Louis and his friends are then captured, imprisoned, and tortured in a prisoner of war camp every day after this, what they thought, rescue. But all the while, as we find the story, Louis Zamperini held out. One day, just maybe, they'll be freed. Maybe the troops will come and save them from their hopeless circumstances. And finally, two years later, troops did arrive, and they brought Louis and the other soldiers home. But his perseverance through this time did not lead to a fulfilled life for him. When he returned, he was only crippled by fear. He returned to be driven downward into a deep depression, into a violent personality. Until one night, he was confronted with God's saving grace. And of all places, a Billy Graham revival. That night recounts how Louis' heart was softened to receive faith in Christ. And from that encounter, he says he was set free from crippling fear and from haunting nightmares after he trusted in the Lord. Louis would go on to become a missionary and even witness to the own tortures he experienced in Japan. And this is a picture of the power of God's virtue-making grace at work to bring others trapped under the yoke of darkness back to himself. So how has the saving grace of God brought change in your own life? Although our godly living certainly does not merit us eternal life, it rather reflects his work, his work of his spirit among us and in us. The Lord desires that we pursue him and enables us to do so as we draw near to him. Perhaps, though, in our day-to-day living, we have begun to forget that love for God. And that's what verse 14 reminds us of. It says that Christ, who forgave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. If you hear that, that we are a special chosen people, ones who are to be zealots for good works. I don't know about you, but the word zealous often has a negative tone to it, almost like saying Pharisee in the Bible. Uh, it's one of those words where if you think of zealot, you might think of one who's a, a legalist, only outward focused. But Paul uses it quite unapologetically here, and he does so very positively when he says zealous for good works. Rather think that we should be devoted, enthusiastic, aspiring to those acts God impresses on us to do so, but to do them joyfully. And so now virtuous life 
and action are linked. We're to be about the work of ministry, he's saying. And it's not just the minister or the evangelist or your elder or your deacon or even your parents. God is calling each of us, each of his children, to do good works. Ones that display a gratitude. Ones that show that a life of faith is a life of virtue, one scholar put it. So perhaps you have in your mind someone who displays this, this life of faith and virtue well. A grandparent, a friend, a professor, or a mentor. You see in them that they live daily seeking a life devoted to the love of God. But cultivating these traits is not really our end. They're our preparation. The greatest gift, though, that it prepares us for is that eternal blessed hope in the triune God. And that brings us to our second point tonight. Awaiting our blessed hope. We live virtuously as the process by which we are prepared to behold the fuller glory of God. Now today, if you were to ask any professional, business, life, or sports coach, what's the key to success? They'd probably tell you something like this, that you need to visualize and focus on what your end goal is. Often sports teams that dream of and plan of hoisting the trophy one day at the end of the season will put a photo of it, or they'll put a big calendar circling the date of the final championship game in front of everyone so they see it as they walk by, the players, the coaches, the staff. And why do they do that? And so everyone sees it every day as they come in to work. They visualize it. That day, that event that everyone's working toward, they're preparing, they're training, so that they know what they're striving towards and how hard they're willing to work to reach that goal. Further, there's a study done which they found that those who actually wrote down their goals achieved them at a 42% likelier high, likelihood, higher uh, chance of achieving that goal. And why is that? They visualized, they tangibly understood, this is what I'm setting out to do. Well, in a sense, I think that's what God is calling us to in verse 13. He wants us to fix our attention on the life that is to come. Because it's the climax of any Christian's life. But it's not without hard work. We're not saved just to sit and hide until Jesus comes. He doesn't want us to be like the servant in the parable who buries the talents and does nothing with them. Rather, these virtues of self-controlled, upright, godly lives are meant to be cultivated now, in the present age, it says, so that we, both body and soul, can behold the day of the Lord. Verse 13 calls it or describes it this way. It says it's the appearing. The Greek word for that is epiphano. You might sound familiar enough. It's that English word epiphany. We use it today usually to say we had a sudden insight, like I just had an epiphany. Or we might have heard of it in some traditions as that holiday, which celebrates the meeting between the Magi and the recently born Christ, Jesus, to signify that the manifestation of Jesus has come to the Gentiles. 
but also every time it's used in Scripture, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's consistently referring to when Christ returns and awaiting it. The amazing thing is that this second epiphany of Christ is not a veiling, it's not a concealing, it is a shining of the glory of our great God and Savior. It's a manifesting of the glory which Jesus describes in his high priestly prayer. He says this, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, to this original audience, those in Crete, they would assume when Paul states our great God and Savior, he means the Father. And yet he says these final two words, Jesus Christ. That is, Paul's telling them that Jesus, the one born to Mary, the man who walked on the earth doing miracles, the one who delivered others from oppressive spirits, is our great God. Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus is Yahweh. Why is that special? Well, for the Apostle Paul, who was a devout, monotheistic Jew, a one-God Jew, he would never say such a thing about a man who we know was convicted of treason, who was stricken, crucified, and buried, and declared dead. Unless... Paul had been shown this himself. He had been shown that Jesus is God. And he was. If you think back to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, it says this, Acts 9. As he went on his way, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Paul said, or, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And for three days, Paul was without sight, nor did he drink or eat. But Paul encountered not the veiled, humiliated Christ. Paul encountered the ascended, glorified Jesus. And for him, it was so overwhelming, he could not behold Jesus. He, Paul, was not yet spiritually ready, nor was he prepared for God's full glory. But when we're told throughout Scripture that Christ is coming, Paul is that witness to us of the radiance of God that is to come. And so at Christ's return on the clouds of heaven, he will be disclosing not just himself, the second person of the Trinity, his appearing is that final act of that Trinitarian mystery, as one writer put it so well. It's an event never before fully seen. No one has understood it. No one has seen it. It's so indescribable. And yet Christ will reveal the full glory of the triune God. Think that Moses was not able to see him, even on Mount Sinai. God's prophets, priests, or kings could not behold this. And yet... It will be revealed to all his believers. We will see and behold the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai. John, the one whom Jesus loved, 
wrote to us in 1 John 3 with these words. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And as Ross wonderfully read earlier in Daniel 12, Daniel recounts this vision of the final day of the Lord. And with it, it brings both great judgment for those who have yet or do not believe in God and deny him, and yet unfathomable happiness for those who do trust and believe. Daniel 12.3 says this, "...shall shine like the brightness of the sky above." Christian, you will radiate in glory because of God's glorious work done. So is it really that easy to picture this day? We see a lot of death, tragedy, and quite the opposite of this glorious vision around us. And so the reality of a future heavenly world seems really far off, maybe even foreign. But yet, I think for some here, I anticipate that such a message of a future, perfect, happy life with God brings great comfort, great consolation. For those of us who may be enduring quite difficult trials through aging or great loss or depression, that the sure hope of a perfectly fulfilled life with Christ means an end to your heavy burdens. It means an end to daily anxieties. It means an end to any abuse you may have suffered. And yet for others, this may sound very strange. You know, a future life of perfect happiness, one with a renewed world, with an all-loving, all-merciful, all-life-fulfilling God. Maybe you think that sounds a little too fairy tale like Our response would say, What then are you hoping in? Christ is the only one who truly has the power to promise this to us. The promise of an eternal blessed life is the maker of this world. The one who, from him, through him, and to him are all things, Scripture says. I think, lastly, for another group, maybe this is a message of motivation Motivation to continue to cling to the Lord Jesus and put off whatever indwelling sin you have. Motivation to pursue a self-controlled, upright, godly living. Knowing that it's promised to those who genuinely seek and love God. Those who draw near to God, he will draw near to. One way that It was described through uh, the Gospel Transformation Bible as this. It says, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, zealous for good works, are produced by embracing the grace of God. Yes, spiritual disciplines, spiritual memorization, accountability structures have their place. But a profound encounter with the grace of the Gospel is the only thing that can produce change at the level of our desires. The grace of God is the instrument of teaching he calls us to submit ourselves to. It's the yoke that we come under. And yet at the same time, it's the entrance into the kingdom 
It's for those who know and trust and love God, who dearly have his word and name upon their lips and turn to for true hope and life. And yet, what does hopeful expectation look like? I think it looks something like this. Uh, You may be familiar with Tolkien's second book from his series, Lord of the Rings, whether you've read or watched it. But toward the end of this book, it builds to this large and um, world-ending battle. And in it, the character Gandalf says to these soldiers, Await his return, for at the first light of the fifth day at dawn. Well, he's departing. Their leader, their guide is leaving them. And what ensues is this great battle between the army of darkness and the army of men. As they battle through all the night, and just before dawn, when it seems the battle is lost, the evil army is going to win. This piercing light is come pouring straight over the mountain. And leading the charge is their leader, the White Rider. And he's accompanied by a host of horsemen. As they bear down into the valley, they overtake the army of darkness and secure victory. Yet these warriors who fought all night... They were disciplined. They were trained. They were prepared to sustain that long battle, awaiting the one who would come with an army of light. Our blessed hope is in a white rider, but it is the Son of Man. And he promises this to us in Revelation. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Our blessed hope is founded on the ancient promise God gave us through his prophet Jeremiah. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. I will bring them back, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God's saving grace is our guide. It's our preparation to live virtuously in the ways that he has told us. That self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Ones that regularly come to offer worship and praise to their God. To receive his word by faith. And to feast upon his bread and wine, as we soon will do. And all that so that we can excitedly await our blessed hope the return of Christ, and the life that can behold the full glory of our triune God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.